Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, an amazing admission was made by proponents of the theory of evolution, macroevolution that is, just a couple of months ago in England. There's a society there called the Royal Society, and they put together a scientific conference there. Now, it's among the most amazing conferences and organizations in the world. It was presided over by Isaac Newton for 25 years before he died, and they called a meeting together to discuss problems in the theory of macroevolution. Now, these are evolutionists, ladies and gentlemen. They called this meeting... And some folks from the Discovery Institute, who are my guests today, were actually there, and they're going to let us know really what happened at this meeting and to see what kind of progress was made. Their goal in this meeting, ladies and gentlemen, was this. Here's This is right off their website. Developments in evolutionary biology and adjacent fields have produced calls for revision of the standard theory of evolution, although the issues involved remain hotly contested, unquote. So the Royal Society was there to say that we've got problems in the neo-Darwinian theory of evolution. We're trying to find solutions. And so the guests that are on my program today were there. They can tell us if they indeed did find any solutions to the problems. And they are no strangers to this program. At least one of them isn't. One is Dr. Stephen Meyer. He's been on the program several times before. As you know, Dr. Meyer has written two seminal books. Uh, well, more than that, but the two we've discussed quite a bit on this program, Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt. He has his Ph.D. from the University of Cambridge, a small community college lo lo located somewhere in Illinois. No, that's not true. Uh, and uh, he uh, has been uh, on NPR. He's been featured in two New York Times front page stories. He is one of the clearest proponents of intelligent design you'll ever hear. So Steve is on the program. And also uh, Dr. Doug Axe, who is also a PhD. Uh, he went to uh, UCAL Berkeley, also did doctoral work at Caltech. He also held positions at the University of Cambridge. And uh, his work has appeared in many scientific journals. And he's got a brand new book that is actually a great read, as well as Stephen's books are great reads. And that book is called Undeniable. We'll talk a little bit about that today, but we're going to have uh, Doug on the program in the future to talk more about that book. But gentlemen, welcome to the program. Great to be, be here. with you again. Yeah. All right. They're both here. They both said great to be with you at the same time. This is intelligently <laughs> designed. So, Steve, <laughs> let me start with you. Uh, first of all, tell our our um, our listeners what the Royal Society is all about, because uh, I had a very poor introduction on what it actually does. Who are these people, and uh, and what do they do for a living? Well, the the Royal Society is the world's oldest and arguably most prestigious scientific organization. It was founded in the 17th century by uh, scientists such as Sir Robert Boyle, and then later, as you mentioned, uh, Sir Isaac Newton was uh, the head of it. And uh, so it's a very august 
Scientific Association. It goes way back to the founding of modern science. And the leaders uh, of the Royal Society, as well as a group of evolutionary biologists who have dubbed themselves the Third Way, um, called this conference because of a, a growing and widespread dissatisfaction with the standard textbook theory of evolution known as neo-Darwinism, the theory we all learn when we take biology in high school or college. And the, the, the title of the conference was New Trends in Evolutionary Biology, Biological, Philosophical, and so Social Science Perspectives. So it was a rather innocuous academic-sounding title, but the underlying uh, uh, motive or uh, reason for the conference was precisely this widespread dissatisfaction with neo-Darwinism. And many of the leaders um, in the evolutionary biology community who called the conference have been uh, uh, outspoken critics of what's known as the, the modern synthesis of neo-Darwinism. So it was, for, uh, it was very interesting to us that the, this dissatisfaction, which, which uh, I described at, at some length in, um, in Darwin's Doubt, I made the point in the preface there that there's a huge disparity between the public presentation of the standard textbook theory and its actual status as you find it in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. So the people who really know are saying this natural selection random mutation mechanism just doesn't have much creative power, and we need to supplement that me mechanism or come up with some new mechanism that could account for the major innovations that have occurred in the history of life. And that's the big problem. The small, minor stuff that you read about in the textbooks, the the, the Darwin's finches and the Galapagos or the peppered moths in England that go from light to dark to light in the coloration of their wings, that kind of stuff, the, the mutation selection mechanism can arguably explain uh, antibiotic resistance, uh, 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 phenomena such as uh, small-scale phenomena such as that. But the major innovations where you see whole new body plans or organ systems arise in the fossil record this is something that uh, evolutionary theory hasn't really touched, and uh, the, 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 the organizers of this conference were actually quite forthright about that in their opening talks, and then they attempted to solve the problem, and we can talk more about that. Yeah, we're going to get into that, what they actually said, and what your assessment of what they actually said here in a minute. That was Dr. Stephen Meyer. Doug, we're talking now to Doug Axe. Doug, did these folks actually... Um, put themselves kind of in a difficult situation by admitting there were problems in the theory of evolution? Because as I read your new book, Undeniable, when when you were interacting with, with uh, some of uh, these individuals during your time at Cambridge, they uh, you actually almost, I, I would venture to say by reading the book, you, you in, in effect got fired for suggesting that um, that maybe the neo-Darwinian viewpoint wasn't really true, at least at, at one point in your research. So are, are, are the folks that brought this meeting together, are, was it a big deal for them to come out and say, hey, we got a big problem here in this theory of, of macroevolution? In a way, it was. Um, I think they walked this fine line between wanting to say that there's need for a revolution, but not wanting the revolution to be as radical as Steve and I would like it to be. So they're trying to uh, the majority of the people, and they did have a couple of the old guards uh, representing the modern synthesis there as well. So there's kind of friction between these two camps playing itself out at the society meeting for these three days that it was held in the beginning of 
November. Um, the the new guard is trying to call for uh, rebranding or recreation of evolutionary theory, but they don't want to be as radical as saying that material and natural causes cannot explain life. They all kind of come under that. Uh, they circle the wagons when it comes to, to that question. They all believe that life is the consequence of material causes. Um, and it really ended up, it felt to me as though it ended up being kind of like a turf war where the new guard is really wanting to get credit for having substantially revised the theory and the old guard is saying, no, really the basics are still the same. It's all about natural selection. So there's a lot of this heated debate over how significant the role of natural selection is. And most of these people who have done the newer work are saying it's not as significant as Darwin thought it was. And there are these other things that are more significant. And I think Steve and I would agree that all of the all of these new elements that were discussed are true and real, but they don't explain invention of anything new. So the elephant in the room was that um, none of the things that were being debated actually solved the problem for evolution of explaining the origin of new things. Hmm. We're talking to Doug Axe. His new book is Undeniable, and also Dr. Stephen Meyer. Both of these are PhDs, but they write for the general public. So you want to get their books. Uh, you want to get Stephen's book, Signature in the Cell, Darwin's Doubt, and Doug's book, the new book, Undeniable. By the way, Darwin's Doubt, the, the, the book, is actually, uh, actually just came out last week in audio. So uh, you can pick it up in audio as well. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about the five major problems with macroevolutionary theory. And then we're going to ask both Doug and Steve, who were at the meeting, whether any of these five issues were addressed at all in the Royal Society meeting. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek. We're back in two minutes. Don't go away. Welcome back to Cross-Examine on the American Family Radio Network. Happy New Year to you. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. I can guarantee you you're not going to hear this on NPR. We're talking about the Royal Society meeting, which occurred in November in London, which was questioning the current theory of macroevolution. And we have two experts from the Discovery Institute on the program with us to unpack what happened there and to unpack these reasons that macroevolutionary theory doesn't work. One is Dr. Stephen Meyer. He's been on the program several times before. His book, Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt, are two books you need to get. And the new book by the other guest, Dr. Doug Axe, is called Undeniable. Very easy to read and explains these issues very well. You need to get that one as well. And, gentlemen, before the break, we were talking about the four major problems uh, Steve and I discussed uh, a couple of years ago, Steve, on this program for macroevolution. Let me just list them quickly, and then we can all have a discussion about them. And then we'll add a fifth problem that Doug talks about it quite quite length and undeniable. The first problem is the fossil record. The second problem is the origin of information. The third problem is the necessity for early mutations. We'll explain that when we get there. The fourth problem is epigenetic or structural information. And the fifth problem is the universal design intuition we all have. But Steve, let's open it up with the fossil record. This is the subject of your book, Darwin's Doubt. Tell us about the Cambrian explosion and why this creates problems for macroevolutionary theory. Well, the, Cam the Cambrian explosion is the uh, refers to the sudden appearance, the geologically abrupt appearance of most of the major animal body plans that have existed on planet Earth 
And the the problem for Darwinian theory is that these the origin of the first animals and many other groups throughout the history of life occur very abruptly with no discernible connection to other uh, rela- to related forms of life in earlier uh, sedimentary layers. So rather than the history of life being depicted as Darwin did in The Origin of Species as a great continuous gradual branching tree where one form gradually morphs into another, what the fossil record actually shows is something much more like um, uh, a lawn than a tree, or maybe a, a network of a par- an orchard of, of uh, parallel trees that never quite connect. And uh, so that that was something that troubled Darwin, especially it especially troubled him in relationship to these Cambrian forms, these Cambrian animals, which were the first major groups of animals to come into the fossil record. And rather than that problem going away. It's become more acute, as I show, in the last 150 years. Darwin thought that new fossil finds would fill in the gaps. It's been just the opposite. The new fossil finds have created more gaps, and, um, and so the problem is more acute than it was when he first worried about it. Okay, so the first problem is the fossil record, namely the Cambrian explosion. The second problem is the origin of information itself expressed in DNA for the first life and new life forms. There's no known natural source for such information, and in all our experience— Information always comes from an intelligent source. Now, Doug, you write about this as well as Steve does. Tell us a little bit about that issue, the the information problem. Well, um, I started looking at this at the level of single genes, so the information contained in the in the base pairs that form a strip of DNA that encodes for a single protein molecule. And when I started investigating investigating this problem, I was asking. Um, how much information do you need in one of these genes in order for the protein that it encodes to fold and work inside a living cell? Um, was able, after many years of work, to put a number on that. Uh, equivalently, you could say how rare in the state's possibilities are these sequences that actually work, the protein sequences, that is. And doing experiments on one of these functional proteins and doing the calculations from the data I came up with a very, very scary number, one in 10 to the 77th power, one in uh, one in a trillion, 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 even less than that, if you can imagine that. When you get to numbers that are that low, probabilities that are that low, it turns out that even in billions of years with billions and billions of organisms, you can't hit targets that are that small. So it's the, it's the problem of hitting a very small target, which is equivalent to the problem of having the information that would be needed to hit a very small target. I'm reminded of the movie Dumb and Dumber for the <laughs> evolutionist's um, response so to I this. So I do have but, a chance, that one. Yes, that one. <laughs> so what's the chance when Jim Carrey's talking to this girl that's beautiful, and of course he he's a nerd, <laughs> what are the chances of you and I getting together? <laughs> and she goes something like, what, one in a million? And he goes, so you're saying there's still a chance? There's absolutely no chance uh, if your calculations are correct, Doug. And I remember you making this point in that famous video, which I think is a fabulous video, Darwin's Dilemma. Uh, our listeners, if they don't have that video, they need to get that. Darwin's Dilemma, great video put out by you guys at the Discovery Institute. And I think you're in there talking about your article in the Journal of Molecular Biology making this very point. And, and basically, just to be clear again, you're saying that mathematically there's no way to get – a what a, a protein? E- even if the whole world was a primordial soup, what, what's 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 the the gist of the argument here? 
Um, the argument, this has been peer-reviewed and published in the journal, uh, journal called Journal Molecular Biology in 2004. Mm-hmm. The argument is that the um, arrangement of amino acids, so uh, proteins are like uh, sort of like a pearl necklace, and the pearls are um, come in 20 different flavors. Those are the, mm-hmm. the amino acids that have to be lined up to make a protein fold and work. The uh, odds of stringing these pearls together and getting something that folds uh, to a form that could function in a living cell is about that 1 in 10 to the 77th power number, 1 in a trillion, 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 <laughs> which means if you look at the number of organisms that have lived in the history of life on Earth, even considering how many bacteria there are and even considering that those bacteria have been around for billions of years, you just don't have enough chances for even a single functional protein with a new three-dimensional structure to have been invented in that time. Now, now Doug, if that's, if that's ahead, impossible, then clearly the bigger problem is like organizing new uh, organs, new tissues, new body plants are, are completely impossible. All right. We're going to come back to that point later and see how, if anyone at the Royal Society had tried to address that point, I doubt it, but we'll come back to it. Steve, the third problem uh, deals with the, the, the fact that you need early mutations to get a change in body plan, but that creates problems in the organism. What's what's the issue with, with that uh, for macroevolutionary theory? Well, that, that's, a, that's a really big problem. But before I get there, I had a dumb and dumber way of, of amplifying Doug's earlier point. What's that? <laughs> well, <I'll, laughs> in, when I give a, a talks on this to in popular audiences, I'll often ask, um, you know, if we have any computer programmers in the, in the audience, I'll say, if you uh, if you want if you start with a computer a functional program or operating system, and then you start randomly changing the zeros and ones, are you more likely to degrade the information you have, or to get something fundamentally new, a new program or operating system? Yeah. And they all you know the, the, the people will will laugh, and the, because the programmers know that long before they ever get a new operating system or a new program, if you start changing zeros and ones, the, the digital characters in the program, you're going to degrade that information and, dis- mm. and destroy the program. Mm. Uh, now, the, in, the, in the evolutionary analog, once you've destroyed the information, you don't have anything that's selectable. And, and, the, the re- and Doug, what Doug has done is show the reason why that always happens, and that is that there are vastly more ways to go wrong than there are to go right, mm. that if you arrange characters randomly, you're, you're, um, th- there's so many more ways of arranging characters that don't give you a functional word or computer program or, in the biological context, a functional uh, DNA or protein, um, that you're overwhelmingly more likely to fail than to succeed. And his numbers are indeed really scary, and uh, and that's just something the other side has not wanted to address. So, mm-hmm. um but the, the other problem you asked about is the problem of the, 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 the that's the problem of building the new information you need in a gene or protein. But then you also have the problem of building uh, a whole new body plan. And a body plan is a unique organization of body parts and tissues. And this is at a higher level than just the genes and proteins. And it tur- turns out that in experiments that, uh, that uh, some Nobel Prize winning scientists did in the 80s, they discovered just working on fruit flies that if you um, if you mutate uh, intentionally introduce mutations into the genome of the fruit flies, 
uh, in order to try to get uh, what they were trying to do is knock out certain parts of the fruit fly to figure out which parts of the genes controlled those parts. And they found that whenever they mutated things early in the development of the organism, that in, inevitably the fruit fly would die. It would, they called it a, the problem of embryonic lethals. But this is very significant for evolutionary theory because the very kinds of mutations you would need to build a whole new body plan where you're rearranging body parts and tissues would have to be ones that acted very early. Because if, they, if, if the mutations occur late, they're only going to affect a few cells in an isolated area. They're not going to change the arrangement of all the cells and all the tissues and all the organs. So the kind of mutations you need, early acting, body plan changing mutations, um, always result in, uh, in organismal death. Mm. And so that, that's, that's kind of a catch-22. The ones you need, you don't get. The ones you get, you don't need. And, uh, and nobody's really, really solved that problem. So it's really a fundamental problem from going beyond the origin of new genes and proteins to the origin of a whole new body plan, which is what we witness in something like the Cambrian explosion. That's interesting, too, because I know you've had several radio debates on your book, Darwin's Doubt, and uh, there was one paleontologist from UCAL, Berkeley, who uh, tried to take on your thesis. Uh, his name was Charles Marshall, I believe it is. is that, do I have that right, Steve? Right, exactly. And, and we got just a minute before the break, but I remember him trying to say that, well, if you uh, the origin of information is in gene regulatory networks, and you responded how? Well, uh, this is related to the problem I was just describing. Right. Uh, gene regulatory networks are essentially uh, networks of coordinated interaction between genes and their protein products. And these networks uh, are essentially functioning as integrated circuits that control the development of organisms from embryo to adult form. The problem is, again, if you perturb those networks, um, the organism dies and you don't get to the adult form. So he was saying that the way to, you didn't need new genetic information. All you needed to do was to, um, to change the gene regulatory networks that control animal development. So you alter these gene regulatory networks, you get a new animal body plan. The problem is we know experimentally, and Marshall knows this full well, we know experimentally that that's the very thing that never happens. When you right. alter these things in the laboratory, uh, these networks of genes, the organism doesn't get the full development, it just dies. If you have a dying organism, you get no more evolution. And as you pointed out in the debate, you said you're just putting the origin of information back a step. You're not, you're not explaining where information came from to begin with. And we're going to cover that when we get back. We're also going to go back to Doug Axe because he has talked about this a little bit in his new book, Undeniable. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in just two minutes. Don't go away. Society in London, a very prestigious scientific organization, just held a conference a couple of months ago to discuss the problems with macroevolutionary theory. Two of my guests today, or my two guests today, were there. 
Dr. Doug Axe and Dr. Stephen Meyer. And what we're doing here in this program is we're going through five major problems with macroevolutionary theory. And then we're going to see if anybody at the Royal Society addressed any of them. So far, we've covered the fossil record, the Cambrian explosion. We've covered the origin of information. And this is not a God of the Gaps argument, ladies and gentlemen. It's not just that we lack a natural ex explanation for information. It's that information, a message, is positive, empirically verifiable evidence for an intelligent cause. So it's not just we're, we're not just arguing for what we don't know, we're arguing for what we do know. Then the third problem after the fossil record and the source and the origin of information is the fact that early mutations are necessary in order to get uh, a major change in body plans. The problem is if you, if you, get mutations very early in the development of a creature, it results in the death of the creature. And so Steve was talking about that before the break. But, Doug, I was reading in your book, Undeniable, this morning that there's another point about the gene regulatory networks that you make in that book. Can you highlight that point for us? Yeah. Well, this comes from Charles Marshall's critique of Steve's book, Cell and Doubt, where uh, Marshall concedes the very point that Steve said, which is um, these mutations in these networks, these gene regulatory networks, tend to be overwhelmingly lethal. They prevent proper development to a, to a viable organism. But Marshall said that's only because they have been overlaying with billions of years of, or hundreds of millions of years of, of evolution. In other words, Marshall is arguing that natural selection has perfected these networks to the point where they're no longer evolvable. And that's an interesting turn in the argument that would have surprised Charles Darwin, I think, or even evolutionists a generation ago, because up until this point, it has always been believed that evolution is a process not only that happened in the past, but is happening in the present tense and will be happening in the future. And now you have these evolutionists like Marshall saying, no, it doesn't happen in the present because things are locked in, but that's because it did such a good job in the past that it no longer works. And interestingly, when we've looked at the evolution of gene function for, or the evolution of protein function, proteins encoded by single genes, and we have laboratory evidence that you cannot get transitions from one protein function to another, these A to B transitions that we studied, we encounter the same critique, which is, of course, a modern... A enzyme cannot evolve the B function. That's because they're stuck uh, being what they are. They've been so perfected by natural selection, they no longer evolve. So there you have both at the molecular level and the organismal level, the same argument saying that evolution does not work in the present tense, but there were these forms that were much less perfected, much more plastic, much more pliable in the past, and those are the forms that evolved. But wait, Doug, what Doug. That does. I'm not no, I'm kidding. This is true. Yeah, I know. I know it's the true. You 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 cover it in your book, Undeniable, which is a fabulous book, by the way. But I, I got to ask this question, Doug. I, I, it seems to me that a they're begging the question, and b they seem to be dispensing with the principle of uniformity. I mean, how do they know that uh, that these things changed in previous times if they can't change them by random processes now? It takes the whole theory really out of the realm of the scientists. Because the scientists have always always been about hypotheses about what happens, or you can you can talk about what happened in terms of the things that we know do happen in the present. Right. But when you make it intrinsically about things that 
are not observable and do not happen and you cannot replicate in the lab, it seems to me it's, it's gone into the realm of science fiction. There's no way you can go and test these things. Yeah, you can't test them. If you don't want your theory to be refuted, but, it, it, but it's not very convincing. It's a story without any evidence, right. which is right. what it's just it's frustrating because you look at these folks and you say, don't you see the problem here? And it seems like they don't acknowledge it or don't want to acknowledge it. OK, we got the fossil record. That's a problem. We got the source of information. The second problem, the early mutation issue we just spoke about is the third problem. Steve, epigenetic information is another problem. And you point out that this is a relatively new discovery. You pointed out a lot in Darwin's doubt. What's that problem with macroevolutionary theory? Well, epigenetic just refers to uh, information that resides beyond the genome. We used to think that all the information was in that, ne that was necessary to build a new form of life was embedded in the DNA. Mm. But we're now learning that there are other forms of information, uh, some of it uh, digital-ish and some of it not, um, stored in other parts of the organism. And uh, so if you th one way to think of it is just to realize what DNA does. DNA encodes information for building proteins. But proteins are just parts of cells, and cells are parts of tissues, and tissues are parts of uh, organs, and organs and tissues form whole uh, body plans. So, you know, so in, in addition to the, the arrangement of the, uh, the parts of the protein that the DNA directs, the proteins themselves have to be arranged, the cells have to be arranged, and the tissues and organs have to be arranged, and that requires other sources of uh, information or other forms of instruction. And we know where some of those sources of information are. I write about four of those epigenetic sources, known epigenetic sources of information in Darwin's Doubt. Uh, but this is an area of active research as people are looking for the, what really is controlling animal development. And the evolutionary point that's, uh, of relevance here is that um, according to neo-Darwinism, uh, body plan building, body plan morphogenesis, as it's called, is directed uh, at the lowest level in the biological hierarchy, and it occurs as a result of the information in DNA, and therefore, mutations in DNA, in theory, ought to be able to build new forms of animal life. The problem, though, is that if DNA doesn't control body plan building by itself, but if other sources of information are necessary, as we now know they are, then you could mutate DNA indefinitely, and you would never build a new uh, form of animal life, a new body plan. You might get a new protein if you could overcome the astronomical odds against it that Doug has documented in his research. Um, and that, we think, is a dubious proposition by itself. But even if you could overcome those odds, you would still have the problem of generating this other form of information that's not stored in DNA, and no amount of DNA-based mutation is going to get that job done. So Friends, that, uh, that's, the, that's the fundamental problem, and it is one of the big reasons there is a third way in evolutionary biology. Many leading evolutionary biologists are recognizing this problem. You see, friends, uh, this is uh, 
the biggest idea that I took away from Darwin's Dow, well, there are many great ideas that uh, Steve uh, has in the book, but this idea in particular seems to point out to me anyway, and Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, that the neo-Darwinian view that you just said that you could just mutate DNA and you're going to get new, new body plants is demonstrably false because it's of epigenetic information. Yeah, and, anyone and, who knows anything about developmental biology now knows that this doesn't work. And, and, work. You, and you can't mutate in, in epigenetic information. Yeah. You and can't our, mutate, our guy right? on this uh, uh, is Jonathan Wells, who's done right. terrific work on this. He has a, uh, a, uh, an excellent article at Biocomplexity, a review article uh, documenting the various sources of, of non-DNA-based information that is necessary to, to animal development. And, and j- j- just to be clear, you cannot mutate epigenetic information, correct? Well, I mean, that's the, the thing that everyone wants to say. Well, could you mutate this? The, yeah. the answer is, uh, first of all, many many of the structures that store this information, and it's often stored in the kind of structural way, mm-hmm. are too large to be subject to the usual mutational influences. And secondly, much of this epigenetic information is hierarchi- hierarchically integrated so that if you change the, the repository of that information, you end up destroying the organism just as you do if you try to change mm. developmental mm. regulatory mutations. So all right. um, it's, it's a big problem. Yeah, yeah, it is. And all the details are in Darwin's Doubt, which, by the way, has just come out in audio. So if you want to get the audio version, you can. Okay, we got the fossil record, the problem of information, early mutations, epigenetic information. Now, Doug, we're talking to Doug X now, Dr. Doug X, new book, Undeniable. Doug, in this new book, you, you highlight kind of a fifth problem here, and that is the universal design intuition. Explain what that is. Well, it is this idea that we all have from an early age. It's been acknowledged by people who are not in favor of intelligent design at all that uh, before we're even school age, when we look at living things, we attribute them to a godlike designer. I've got a quote in the book uh, quoting Alison Gopnik, professor of psychology at UC Berkeley. She says, um, by elementary school age, children start to invoke an ultimate godlike designer to explain the complexity of the world around them, even children brought up as atheists. So she's acknowledging this is not something where it's uh, parents instilling an idea into the kids. It seems to be absolutely natural in all kids when they look at life, they attribute it to a godlike designer. And there's a beautiful quote of uh, Francis Crick. Uh, Later in his life, he said, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. So Crick is acknowledging there that we never really get rid of this intuition. We have it when we're young children. We're, it, we, we try to educate it out of our teenagers and our college students, if you're an educator of the life sciences. You're trying to tell these um, young people, get rid of the intuition. The proper explanation of life is Darwin's explanation. But Crick acknowledged we never really fully believed that. So I think this is a true problem in that um, even evolutionary biologists are constantly having to uh, do this tug-of-war with an intuition that tells them the truth, <laughs> and they're trying to, to fight that off and overwrite the truth with the Darwinian story, and no one fully believes it, I think. No, and you point out in the book Undeniable many instances of this universal design intuition turning out to be true. It's not just an intuition. You you can see Correct. it in living things, and we don't have time to get in all the details here. The people have to go out there and get the book Undeniable. And as we say, Doug, in a future date, we'll 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 just have a show devoted to your book because it's such a great book. Uh, and uh, and that is the fifth area that 
uh, I think, shows that macroevolutionary theory is on the ropes. Now, the question is, uh, did anybody at the Royal Society deal with any of these five problems in any substantive way? Did they deal with the problem of the fossil record, the problem of the origin of information, the problem of early mutations, the problem of epigenetic information, the problem of the universal design intuition? Did they deal with any of that? We're going to find out right after the break. My guests today, again, are Dr. Stephen Meyer, author of Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt, and Dr. Doug Axe, author of the new book, Undeniable, all easy to read books on technical information they make it easy to read easy to understand you want to get those books to be informed you're listening to cross-examine with frank turek on the american family radio network we're back in just two minutes with more from dr meyer and dr axe by the way their website discovery.org check it out discovery.org back in two Examine with Frank Turek and the American Family Radio Network. Want to let you know, uh, let's see, January 24th will be at Appalachian State University, another I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist seminar. You want to check that out. The week after that will be in Oklahoma, several events there. Check out our website, crossexamine.org, and then uh, also check out our app, the Crossexamined app. It's all up there. The TV show you can stream up there. This podcast you can find there. Quick answer section you can find there. Download the app, if you will. We're talking to uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer and Dr. Doug Axe, and we're talking about the problems with macro macroevolutionary theory. We went through five major problems on this program, and uh, – there was a conference called in England, in London, by the Royal Society. Uh, Steve, let me start with you. First of all, uh, did the Royal Society acknowledge any of the problems that we just went through on this program? In a way, yes. Uh, there was a really interesting talk that kicked off the conference by a very prominent uh, Austrian evolutionary biologist named Gerd Müller. And his talk uh, defined... Uh, or uh, explained the ex what he called the explanatory deficits of neo-Darwinism. He, he focused on three. One was the origin of uh, biological novelty, new structures, um, anatomical structures and body plans. The second was the origin of biological complexity. And the third was the, the discontinuous origin of new animal form in the fossil record. Well, the discontinuous origin is uh, the, the Cambrian explosion and other events like that, where you have a lot of uh, new forms of life arising very abruptly without clear uh, precursors in the earlier strata. So that's problem number one. It was acknowledged. The problem of the origin of novelty is one which really touches on um, or is, is a manifestation of all the other problems we were talking about. To build a new form of life, you need new information. You need new genetic information. You need new epigenetic information. You need new developmental gene regulatory networks, those circuits of interaction, uh, the, the interactions between the genes and proteins that are functioning like a circuit that we were talking about. So in a way, the, the problems were acknowledged at, at a kind of 30,000-foot level. They didn't drill down into the problems as deeply as, as, as certainly Doug has done or uh, uh, some of the others of us in the ID movement have done. They didn't talk much at all about the problem of the origin of, of genetic or epigenetic information, but that is the problem that underlies the problem of the origin of novel structure, novel form, or what they call the origin of novelty. 
so the problems were at least at a, at a superficial level acknowledged. Uh, whether they solved them or not is another question altogether. Now, Doug, uh, you well, both you and Steve were at this meeting. Uh, were there any uh, awkward moments where maybe design was hinted at or suggested or any of these problems were taken down to a real uh, specific level that couldn't be answered by materialism? There were, in fact, a couple of awkward moments. I think uh, I can't remember the name of the speaker, but it was someone who spoke about um, sort of the design metaphor, the use of design language in biology, and he was actually mm. defending it. But in order that he would not be mistaken for a bad guy like Steve or me, he had to very explicitly say, I am not saying that design is correct. I'm not one of those guys, but here's the benefit of using design-type language, um, purpose-type language in biology. And there was uh, heated uh, questioning after his, his talk concluded in the Q&A session, where someone was pressing him for, what exactly are you saying when you say this? Um, so that was one of the most uh, heated moments in the whole meeting. Um, other ones, it seemed to me that the heat was largely between these two camps. And he's right. The beginning of the meeting started with the very big problems that are unsolved in evolutionary biology being raised. And then it continued with all these relatively small um, uh, discussions about whether natural selection is sufficient and what is there other than natural, natural selection. And it kept revolving around the same sorts of things um, phenotypic plasticity, niche construction, a number of ideas that are not brand new. They do talk about things that cause minor changes that are not driven by natural selection, but none of them come back and answer the problem of the origin of novelty. None of them actually explain how new things get invented. So after that you know, beautiful start, I think the meeting kind of showed that they don't have anything to offer to answer it. You know, it's interesting. I, I looked at uh, a, a blog uh, that uh, your one of your colleagues, Andrew, sent me. I think it's on evolutionnews.org. If, is, that, is that your website right. or that's, is that a website? That, that, yeah, yep. that's our science uh, magazine blog. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And, and uh, he says on here, quote, and I'm quoting for what he says, none of the speakers even attempted to address the crucial problem of the origin of new complex structures and information, unquote. Now, why would they call the meeting if they weren't going to address those issues? Steve? Well, I think it's largely because they don't really have solutions from within a naturalistic framework. Okay. We know from experience, as you were saying before, that information always arises from an intelligent source, whether we're talking about uh, a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or a section of computer code. Uh, that's what we know. And that's the one kind of answer that they weren't willing to consider. They weren't, uh, and so inevitably, if you're trying to explain the phenomenon within a framework that doesn't offer a cause which is known to produce that phenomenon, you're going to end up spinning your wheels. And and uh, there there was a fair amount of wheel spinning. Also, some really interesting people coming right up to the water's edge, but not willing to take that step to that that logical next step. There's a, a cell biologist that we all admire quite a lot named James Shapiro from the University mm -hmm. of Chicago. He's done some really excellent work on uh, documenting 
that many of the mutations that occur in actual cells and actual living organisms are not random at all, random with respect to the survival needs of the organism, but rather they're under a kind of what he calls algorithmic control. There's a kind of pre-programmed adaptive capacity built into cells, built into larger organisms, that allows them to respond to various kinds of environmental stressors by triggering the production of necessary adaptive changes, new proteins, for example, that will help them in a given, in a given situation. This is very non-Darwinian in that it's not random at all. It's, it's under some sort of uh, pre-programmed um, control. And the, the, the question that uh, Shapiro does a great job of documenting these phenomena, but he doesn't ever really address the question of where that pre-programming comes from. Where does the information come from that's mm-hmm. inherent or implied in the existence of, that kind of the algorithm that's controlling all this? That he doesn't explain. And you, you, so you had that kind of a, uh, a number of mechanisms that were, were invoked that may bring some new richness to our understanding of how biology works, but they don't actually get to that fundamental origins question. Doug, if none of these issues were really addressed head on, what was accomplished at this Royal Society meeting and where do they go next? Well, I'm not sure what was accomplished. I think it was very interesting for Steve and me and a number of others who are very willing or advocating the design position. We're wanting to address those problems by bringing design into biology. It was very interesting to see how the dialogue developed among people who are not like-minded. It's interesting when you have, these were, by the way, sterling scientists, some of the best scientists uh, in evolutionary biology speaking. And so at the end of the three-day conference, when you have names like this coming together and speaking, and none of them have solved the problem, none of them have really honestly addressed the problem, it gives you some uh, assurance that there are no answers coming from the materialist naturalist camp. Um, we knew that going in, but it's interesting to go to a meeting and see that play itself out. I now, think maybe from... Go ahead. No, no, you go, go. I think maybe if you were to ask some of the speakers, it seemed to me that the biggest thing at play in this meeting was not solving these big problems, but getting credit, uh, reassigning credit in the evolution textbook. It seemed as though the new guard was wanting the textbook to be rewritten, and one of the big textbook authors was there, part of the old guard. Um, and there was this tension between, it, it was a tension about credit and turf war kind of tension. Um, will you guys who are writing the textbook acknowledge that evolution has been reinvented and some of the ideas that we're talking about are key aspects of the new version of evolution, or are you going to continue to say that it's business as usual? And the textbook guy and the few who are representing kind of the old guard position were saying, no, this is business as usual. The things that you're talking about were acknowledged 35, 40 years ago, and you really have not changed the theory. It's still about natural selection operating on random variation. Mm. Well, the elephant in the room, and you talk a little bit about this in uh, the book Undeniable, Doug, the elephant in the room really isn't science. (laughs) Quite frequently, it's philosophy, materialistic philosophy, 
And and I think I don't I don't know if you've said I haven't gotten completely through undeniable yet, but I think ultimately it's a moral issue. These these folks don't want to admit there could be a designer out there because that designer is going to bring morality, and they don't want to be held accountable to them. I don't know what you think about that, but I, I have a little story of something that happened at the conference that was really very well, much. We only, we only got about the thirty elephant, seconds. Elephant Go ahead. In the room. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Israeli biologist Eva Jablonka, advocate of this third way is talking about some new mechanisms. One of the neo-Darwinists says, we don't need new, new mechanisms. Uh, we can just rely on, uh, on the old ones. And, and she says, yes, we do. And she said, I'm not talking about God. <laughs> no one had said anything about God. So it was, that was the elephant in the room, was uh, an intelligent designer, particularly one that might be a deity. So. Oh, exactly. All right, gentlemen, where can, these, where can folks learn more about this conference and you? Go ahead, Doug. Where, what website they go to? Well, if you Google Royal Society New Trends in Evolutionary Biology, it will take you to the website. I think they've got audio of the talks up now, so you can actually All listen right. to these talks, and there's other information there. All right, and Doug, uh, or, uh, Steve, discovery.org is the best place to well, go for I, most I'd actually stuff? go to darwinsdoubt.com because we've okay. got videos and animations, and then our, our online blog, Evolution News, which Beautiful. will give a lot of info about the conference. All right, that's it. Undeniable Doug X Design and dot. Steve Meyer and Undeniable Design. Well, we'll get we're, we're going to do Undeniable soon. Thanks, folks. See you next time. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.